Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Thank you, Dr. Aiken. What a great day it was. Uh, I think this day in 1997 that I sat right where you guys are and I was commissioned as the second ever two plus two class uh, from Southeastern Seminary. Um, I, uh, you should probably feel blessed because I think that Southeastern has gotten considerably better at the training and the deploying of their people. Basically, they dropped me off in Southeast Asia in, uh, on an island, literally an island, um, where I was the only English speaker, me and my roommate, for 100 miles. My language training ex- included, um, hi, my name is JD, where's your bathroom? My house is on fire. Uh, those are the only things that I could say in that language. I thought about structuring my entire message today around lessons that I learned that Southeastern did not teach me, that I learned while I was there, but I did not think that would be very edifying. Uh, the only one that I'll pass on to you is that it is patently untrue that you have to eat whatever they put in front of you. Uh, that is what I was taught. And so when I landed there, I wanted to be a good missionary and it's just what they do in their culture, right? So I was determined to eat everything they put in front of me. The second week I was there, I lost 14 pounds in three days um, in a fashion similar to taking a water balloon, poking a hole in the top and the bottom and squeezing the middle. That's how I lost all the weight. Um, I told you it wouldn't be edifying for me to go through all these lessons, but um, uh, just take my word for it. It's just not true. Uh, I I had a few, um, uh, several, like a month or two after this, I had several of my new friends over and I was going to cook them a a meal of spaghetti, you know, a good American meal. And so um, I made it for them and I had like six of them in the room and, and they, you know, put it in their mouth and one of them just wrinkled up his mouth. He goes, this is terrible. We can't eat this. And I was like, uh, uh, in your culture, you got to eat everything that's put in front of you. That's just polite. So things changed. And from that point on, I'd be sitting at somebody's house and I'd be like, "Mm -mm, you cut that thing's head off and disembowel it. And I might eat it, but I am not eating it uh, in that condition there. Uh, So that is the extent of the practical wisdom that I will share with you. And uh, what they have asked me to talk about this this morning is Christology, which is, of course, your chapel theme for the spring semester. So if you have your Bible or um, take it out, turn it on, open it up to Mark chapter four. Mark chapter four toward the end of the chapters where we're going to be, I want to walk you through what has to be, in my opinion, one of the most underrated aspects of our relationship with Jesus, one that I would say most people ignore altogether, but one that is absolutely essential to true worship and one that is absolutely necessary, especially for those of you that are headed overseas this fall. Um, absolutely necessary if you're going to have great confidence in Jesus in the midst of great struggle or fierce opposition, um, which you will undoubtedly face. And that dimension that I'm talking about is the fear of Jesus. Now, I know that to many people that sounds strange because we think that Jesus is essentially supposed to be meek and mild, tossing children up in the air, petting lambs, looking pensively off into the sunset while his, you know, his hair, permed hair blows in the breeze. And yes, the tenderness and the meekness of Jesus are amazing. But just as important in your relationship with him is learning the right kind of fear. In fact, without the fear of Jesus, you are never really going to find his tenderness that comforting. 
Many people today in our culture assume that a God who should be feared would be a God that was guilty of some kind of fault. The fear of God is some kind of vestige, some kind of leftover relic from an archaic, oppressive view of religion. But anytime you're in the presence of greatness, anytime you feel a sense of fear. My hero growing up was Michael Jordan, the GOAT, the greatest of all time. I was nine years old when he hit the game-winning shot against Georgetown to win UNC their second national championship in 1982. Um, From that point on, Air Jordan became more to me than just my favorite basketball player. He was my role model. I wanted to be like Mike. He inspired me to think that the ceiling was the roof and I was gonna follow um, his pattern. I was convinced um, with a few of my friends that if I just work hard enough that I could dunk like Michael Jordan. So my friends and I, we lowered our basketball goals to seven feet and we spent endless hours perfecting our split leg tongue extended dunks while blasting Whitney Houston's one moment in time at full and full volume on my jam box. Now those dunks felt so right when I was doing them. But when I watched the videos later, they just didn't quite look like Michael Jordan's. And when I watch those videos now, all I can think is, Lord Jesus, what was wrong with me? I look more like a wounded duck coming in for a crash landing than an athlete, premier athlete honing in on perfection. Well, you can imagine how excited I was when, I think it was during my eighth grade year, I found out that Michael Jordan was gonna be at a charity golf tournament not far from my house and that my dad, because of where he worked, could get us tickets. Well, I could have cared less about golf then or now, um, but uh, I got tickets and my best friend and I set out early that morning with one agenda and that agenda was to meet the man, the myth, the legend, the goat himself. For eight hours, we followed around his caravan around the course. Um, We never even got close. His bouncers clearly had experience with people like me. Um, That is, we never got close until the very end of the day. I was standing discouraged near the exit of the golf course, waiting on my parents to come by and pick me and my friend up when I saw a purple um, Porsche Carrera 944 winding its way down the road toward the exit. And I knew it immediately because he always rented the same kind of car everywhere he went. And if you're a devotee, you know that. Um, And that is that kind of Porsche. And I said, that's Michael Jordan. So I turned around and yelled to my friend who was buying some food somewhere. I'm like, it's him, it's Jordan. And a couple dozen people heard me and they all ran over to where I was standing. And as he approached, he was kind of winding his way down the road and there was this little throng of people and, and uh, as he approached, he, was ro- he rolled down the wind and he was looking for somebody. He wasn't looking for me, uh, but he was looking for somebody. And as he got really close to me, my best friend, um, as the window came down, he took me from behind and he shoved me so that I, he stuck my head into Jordan's Porsche so that I was kind of all the way up to my waist and my face is, I'm, I'm literally three inches from the face of Michael Jordan. I could have licked him. Um, and one of my great regrets in life is that I did not, I did not do so. Um, I very nervously sputtered out. I was like, uh, hi, Mike. I mean, what do you say? And, uh, you know, he's six foot six and he's got his arm in the car and he just kind of, he looks over at me and he says, dude, get out of my car. (laughs) I said, yes, sir, Mr. Jordan. I put my hands out and I turned around the crowd and I was like, he talked to me. I had a conversation with Michael Jordan. The presence of greatness, the reason I tell that is because the presence of greatness has a strange effect on us. Whenever you encounter greatness, you feel a curious mixture, right, of desire and terror. You're not sure whether you wanna draw close or whether you wanna run away. So here's the question. If being in the presence of human greatness makes us feel that way, what is it like to be in the presence of infinite greatness? If I was that starstruck in the presence of somebody whose glory consisted basically 
and the fact that he could jump 36 inches higher than I could. What is it like to find yourself in the presence of the one who spoke the universe into existence? You know, God put us into a theater to remind us of the greatness of who he is, but a lot of times we end up being like flies walking around on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel with absolutely no concept of the masterpiece that is beneath our feet. Um, this summer, my family and I spent the summer out in South Africa, and we were several weeks out in the Zulu, the African bush, and we were amazed when we were out there at how many more stars that you could see when there's just no light pollution. Um, you know, it looked like millions of stars. Um, I learned later it was only 9,096. That is the maximum number of stars that you can see at any given point with the naked eye. 9,096 out of what astronomers say are 3,000 billion trillion stars, which is a three with 24 zeros after it, the kind of number that is so big that it's hard to even get your mind around what it means. Each of those 3,000 billion trillion stars puts out the same amount of energy, they say, as a trillion megaton bombs every second. And God created all of that with a word. And more than that, he knows their names, which is also equally mind-blowing to me. Isaiah, he knows them all by name. I, forget, I, I forgot the names of people um, <laughs> whose wedding I have. They came up to me in church a few weeks ago, and they're like, hey, and I'm like, hey, is this your, you know, you, you knew here at the church? Nope, you did our wedding eight years ago. That's exactly right. I sure did. Um, I forget those kind of names. He remembers the names of all of the stars, all 3,000 billion trillion stars. How are you supposed to feel in the presence of that God? Watch what happens in Mark chapter four, verse 35. When evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Now he was talking, of course, about the side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the other side was Gentile territory. Jesus was headed over to Gentiles. They could have very easily taken the land route, but Jesus wanted them to take the boat route. And that's an important detail that we'll come back to in just a minute. Verse 36, after leaving the crowd and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was and other boats were with him. I actually wanna stop here for something totally off topic, but it's a little textual thing that counters an objection I hear people make more and more often about the Bible. And that is, they say, well, you know, the Bible is essentially a collection of legends. Um, I'm right in the backyard of Dr. Bart Ehrman, and he says that all the time, that these are superhero stories that have grown up over time. The idea is popularized, of course, by him and even um, books like the Da Vinci Code and that kind of stuff like that. But here's the problem. Little things like this give you a clue that these stories do not read like legends. They claim to be eyewitness accounts and they read like eyewitness accounts. And you see that through that little detail in verse 35 and hundreds of others like it in the Bible and other boats were with him. Question, what's that got to do with anything? Nothing, it has nothing to do with anything. It's just a guy recalling what he saw from memory, that's it. And there were other boats with him. It's not part of the plot. There are plenty of legends that exist in first century literature and none of them read like that. These read like eyewitness accounts because they are eyewitness accounts. Just a little digression, has nothing to do with the major point. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat and the boat was already filling up with water. Verse 38, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? <laughs> By the way, well, what a dumb question. I feel sorry for these guys because you know, you and I say something dumb in seminary class and people laugh about it and we forget about it. These guys say something dumb, it gets written down in the Bible and we get to talk about it for 2000 years. Now, this must have been some kind of storm because these were experienced fishermen and they've been in lots of storms. The Sea of Galilee where they were was an area very prone to storms. The sea itself is 700 feet below sea level. 
the mountain range that encircles it that has peaks that rise up to 9,200 feet above sea level, which means there's a mixture of cold air from the mountains and the warm air from the, from the sub-sea level that make it really conducive to really bad and sudden storms. I've been there, as I know a number of you have, and even today, if you go to those little restaurants that are along the western side of the sea, they're always up on stilts, and they'll have these little signs that tell you that if a storm comes, you need to get your car out immediately because in the course of an hour, the parking lot can flood by up to 10 feet. And so by the time you're done with your dinner, your car might be floating in the ocean somewhere. So this is one of those kinds of storms. Meanwhile, Jesus, who's tired from a tough day of ministry, has a pillow over his head and he's trying to catch some Z's. We know his sleep is intentional because he has a cushion. Whenever you have a cushion, you intend to sleep. Those of you that brought a neck pillow into chapel this morning, it was very clear what your intentions were. He was planning to sleep. Why is he planning to sleep if he knows a storm is coming? I mean, surely if you can control the weather, you can also predict the weather. He knows it is coming and he is planning to sleep through it. You see, this is all one big setup. So the disciples in fear wake him up with a question, don't you care that we are perishing? Which again is a dumb question. (laughs) But honestly, do you ever feel like that? You ever feel like that? Jesus, we're about to die. I'm being overwhelmed and crushed. And it's like, you don't even care. You're not even there. You seem to be sleeping if you even exist at all. I think Mark records that question, not just to humiliate the disciples, because it's how we often feel. And what he shows us is that's a very natural feeling, and it's okay to wake Jesus up in that moment. Verse 39, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. Now, rebuke is what you do to somebody who's underneath you, right? An employee who's late, you rebuke them, or it's what you do with a child. No, daughter, you were not allowed to talk to your mother that way. No, son, you're not allowed to pee in the sink. A little insight into the Greer house there and how things go there. Jesus stands up and he rebukes the weather like it's nothing more than a rowdy toddler. No incantations, no loud invectives or chants, no expecto patronums or magic wand. He just stands up and calls it down like it's a toddler. Here's something else. Be still in Greek is what they call a verb of continuing action, which means that what he was literally saying was be quiet and stay quiet. In other words, he put the storm in timeout. It was like, you go sit down over there for a while and I'll tell you we can come out and play again. And the storm slinks off over in the corner like a rebuked child or a scolded puppy. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. Not only did the storm die down immediately, the waves themselves died down. Even if you could stop the storm immediately, it would take a couple of hours for the sea itself to calm down. Jesus does it all at once. Then my favorite part of the story, he turns to the disciples and he says, why were you so afraid? Why are we afraid? Well, we thought we were gonna die for starters. And then you rebuke this storm like a rowdy toddler and it listens and you're asking us why we're afraid? Jesus continues, have you still no faith? Watch this. (laughs) And then they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Great fear. When they were in the storm and when they thought they were going to die, they had just plain old regular fear. Just plain old run of the mill, think we're gonna die fear. But after Jesus rescued them, now they feel great fear. In other words, the rescue scared them more than the storm. Seeing Jesus's power over the storm was more terrifying than thinking they were going to die in the storm. And they ask in amazement, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Jews believe that nobody could command the weather but God. Other prophets have possessed the power to heal, but only God, they believe, could control the weather. 
In fact, in some of the rabbinic literature of the time, like 2 Maccabees, anybody who claims to control the weather, they would charge them with blasphemy. Jesus here does this without even calling on a higher power to change the weather. He doesn't stand up and say, God, make the storm stop. He does it himself through his own power. Who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. It has to be God. This is one of three stories that Mark tells right in a row about amazing things that obey Jesus. Right before this is the story of Jesus healing disease and raising the dead. Right after this, he's going to tell a story in which Jesus commands demons and they obey him. And in this one is the one where Jesus commands the weather. And Mark's point is the demons, disease, and death, and the weather all obey Jesus. Why wouldn't you? Let me give you three important implications, I think, from this story. Number one, there's a really good kind of fear. There's a really important kind of fear. As I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of people think the concept of a God that you should fear is outdated, but that is just foolish. How could you understand anything about the power of Jesus and not feel fear? Anybody who glimpses the power of God in the Bible is overcome with fear. Maybe one of my favorite accounts of this is Revelation 1, where the apostle John sees Jesus for the first time after Jesus had returned to heaven. Now, keep in mind that Jesus and John had been BFFs while Jesus was on earth. John, in his gospel, in fact, had rather confidently described himself as the one that Jesus loved. And I know there's some theological things he's getting at with that, but point is, I still think it takes a lot of nerve to put into print. I'm the one that Jesus really liked. They were close, right? I'm thinking about putting that as a subtitle to my name on any future books. J.D. Greer, the one that Jesus loves. John had been so close to Jesus, we learned, that during the Last Supper, he leaned his head back on his chest during dinner. Listen, y'all, I got some close guy friends. Bruce Ashford has been one of my best friends since we were in seminary. He has never leaned his head back on my breast during dinner, and if he did, I would punch him in the throat. He knows that, (laughs) right? So these guys are close, right? So what's their reunion gonna look like? Warm embrace, high five, slap on the back, I missed you. I'll read it to you in John's own words. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. That's not a figure of speech, by the way. When he laid his eyes on the glorified Jesus, John literally thought he was going to die. Y'all, I feel like we've lost almost all concept of this in our churches. He's our homeboy, our pal, the shepherd snuggling with the lost sheep. We glibly sing these sentimental songs about wanting to be in his presence. You realize that if Jesus did what we were asking and he just showed up on stage... A lot of us would feel like we were about to die. That would not be good for church attendance. See, listen, maybe the reason so many people are so casual and unmotivated in their obedience is because they possess no fear of Jesus. My friends, if he rebuked the weather and it obeyed, if he commanded disease and death and they yielded, if he spoke to demons and they surrendered, who are you to disobey him? Some of us who treat the commands of Jesus so casually, even in seminary. I know this habit's sinful, but you know, I'll get it under control eventually. Cheating's not that big of a deal, right? I mean, it can't be that important. This Greek test is not that important. Nobody's perfect. Not even seminary students are perfect. Do you know the one to whom you are speaking and whose name you have taken to yourself? Who are you to defy the one who commands the wind and the waves? More trembling and less sentimental swaying might do our chapel services some good. Number two, we see that fear does not exclude love. Whenever we talk about the fear of God, people object and they say, well, wait, we're not supposed to fear God. He's the meek, tender, soft, brown-haired savior that plays with children. 
Yeah, but then you get pictures of Jesus like this one that make his tenderness that much more amazing. Last year, I reread C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to my two youngest kids, and we came to that famous section where the four children are, are first hearing about Aslam for the first time, the, of course, the lion who represents Jesus. They learn that he's coming back to Narnia and he wants to meet the children. And when the first, children first hear his name, they feel this mixture, Lewis says, of fear and attraction. And Susan, one of the kids says, so wait, who is this Aslan? And Mr. Beaver says, why? He's the king. He's the great lion who is the creator of Narnia. He is the rightful ruler. And Susan says, a lion? Well, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. At that point, my nine-year-old daughter said, so wait, dad, he's safe or he's not? I said, well, he's not safe because he's a lion, but he's good, so you can trust him. So he's not safe. No, but he's good. So he is safe. No, he's not. He's a lion. And we probably talked about this for 15 minutes. And she ended up more confused than when we started. So I want to try to do a better job with you right now. Here's how I describe it. Listen, they say that in high altitude storms, like places like Mount Everest, storms can come on very suddenly um, in the space of a few seconds. Temperature can drop by more than 30 or 40 degrees in the space of literally 30 seconds, accompanied by these severe gale force winds. So I want you to imagine for a minute that you were caught in just such a storm. The wind effortlessly sweeps away all your equipment. You hear the fierce howl of the winds. You feel that deep penetrating cold. You know that death is just a few moments away. But just when you're about to give up hope, you notice behind the crevice of a rock, a small opening in the side of a mountain leading to a regress cave. Inside that cave, you find another traveler, your guide, who has made a fire and is now preparing a meal. As you sit by the fire, sheltered from the storm, you can look back out into the storm, marveling at its awesome power. That storm may no longer be a threat to you, but you still feel a hushed sense of awe before its power, and you stand amazed at the power of the mountain that shields you from that power. That is the kind of fear the disciples feel before Jesus. Our experience of Jesus is supposed to, in many ways, intensify our fear, not lessen it. Psalm 130, verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You look at that verse, you say, forgiven so that we might fear. Isn't the point of forgiveness to take away our fear? If we've really been forgiven, what is there left to be afraid of? Well, see, when you see what Jesus had to go through to save us, it makes us realize the holiness and the perfection of the God that we sinned against. The bloody cross was the terrible price for our sin. God did it as a demonstration of his righteousness. This is the price of disobedience. The cross was what it was because it was exactly what I deserved. It is the closest thing on earth we will come to, to getting a glimpse of hell. But in that same sacrifice, I also see that I am safe within God's love. See, and that moves me to worship. Tis grace that taught my heart to fear. Then grace, my fears relieved. True worship is a mixture of awe and intimacy, awe at the power and the holiness of God, intimacy in realizing that he paid your full sin debt and brought you close. One without the other is a deformed spirituality. And there are some of us who have fear but no intimacy, and therefore we have no warmth and no intimacy, no love in our relationship with God. Other people have intimacy without awe, 
And so they are lazy or casual in their obedience. There's all kinds of areas of compromise. They are not bold. They are uninspired in their worship. They don't take bold risks for God. They're very lethargic and apathetic in their evangelism. True worship is awe mixed with intimacy, which leads me to number three, the last one here. Those who fear Jesus really need fear nothing else. When you realize how powerful Jesus is, when you realize that he's in the boat with you, you won't be afraid of anything else. In this story, Jesus, after he rebuked the wind and the waves, he rebukes the disciples for being afraid. If he rebukes them, that means that they're doing something they shouldn't be doing. But it seems to me, honestly, that their fears are legitimate. They thought they were going to die. God created fear for that moment. Fear is an emotion that he created. That's the time for fear. Jesus said, yeah, but when I'm in the boat with you, even that fear is irrational. You should be sleeping. I feel like every member of my family has some kind of irrational fear. My son, who's seven, who literally will reach down and pick up a snake, it doesn't bother him at all, is terrified of flies. Like embarrassingly so, like in a restaurant, running out of the restaurant screaming about a fly. Allie, my 10 year old, up until a couple of years ago was terrified of the movie, The Incredibles. I mean, like, like, like bawling kind of terrified of that movies. My wife, Veronica, um, <laughs> she's terrified of spiders. Any size spider she sees in her house gets described as huge. She'll come in, she'll come in the other day. There's a huge spider in the, and I'm thinking like, it's like the size of a Frisbee. We've been running the microwave too much and I got to get hazmat gear and like a, you know, uh, um, a compound bow. And I went in there and it's, just, it's about the size of a quarter. It's an irrational fear. We know what it's like to see other people with irrational fears. But with the presence of Jesus in your boat, so to speak, all fears are irrational. Jesus was in their boat. Did they really think God was gonna let his son sink? No. So if Jesus was gonna make it to the other side, and if he was in their boat, that meant that they were gonna make it to the other side too. Because they didn't understand the power of Jesus over the storm, they were afraid of the storm, but had they feared Jesus and understood his power, they wouldn't have been afraid of the storm. I kind of think of it like this. Remember the first Jurassic Park, like the original one? Remember when they're in that dome scene and all the raptors surround them and you think they're surely going to die? But then just in the moment they despair, remember what happens? The T-Rex comes in and gobbles up all the raptors. And there in that moment, you see that the T-Rex is the real one to be afraid of. But what if that T-Rex is on your side? If the T-Rex is for me, who can be against me? If the T-Rex is on my side, what can raptors do to me? Jesus is the truer and better T-Rex. I think that's kind of the point. I mean, now what Paul said in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who is there to condemn? If Jesus is for you, if he's behind the mission, don't you think you can trust him? You know, for those who are going overseas, you, you're going to feel overwhelmed by the opposition against you. It's a lot different when you're there than it is in a classroom, and it hardly ever works the way that you think it's supposed to. And there are going to be days, seasons, months, maybe years where you feel crushed and discouraged. I was like that. I got a chance to take a trip back about halfway through my time there and I remember going into the missions professor here, his name was Dr. Idle. I remember sitting in his office and just saying, it's worthless, it's useless, nobody listens, nobody pays attention. People are more lost now than I think when I went. And I remember he said this, he says, you walk outside at night and you look upwards at the heavens and you see the stars that God put into place and you realize that he chose those same stars as to, to, to represent a promise to Abraham that he was gonna have sons and daughters of the people you're working among like the stars in the sky. And you realize the same one that hung the stars in place is the same one that is able to bring to fruition his promise. 
Discouragement in our lives comes from either A, forgetting the power of Jesus over the storm, or B, doubting his commitment to us in the storm. Well, maybe you ask, you're like, well, if Jesus loves us, why didn't he keep us from the storm to begin with? That's a great question. Verse 35, I showed you, you saw it was his idea to cross the sea. This wasn't a bad situation they got themselves into that he was trying to fix. It was his idea. Why would he knowingly send them into the storm? Why is he knowingly going to put you into a storm? Why is he going to put you in places where they're going to discover your cover or where they're going to do this or that or they're going to, all of a sudden things are going to fall apart. Here's why. There is something more important than God keeping you from all storms, and that is God demonstrating to you his faithfulness in the storm. You see, there are certain things about God that you can only learn in a storm. So God sends these storms because storms are his laboratory where he learns, where he teaches you about himself. Here's what I I, I learned as a pastor. Everybody in my church wants to see miracles in their lives. I've never talked to a Christian who didn't want to see a miracle. Never. But here's the other side of that. Nobody wants to be in a position where they need a miracle, right? But you see, until God puts you in a place where you need his sustaining power, you'll never really have a chance to experience it. After long, meticulous, Greek-based study of the New Testament, I've come to this one brilliant conclusion. You ready? Every miracle in Jesus's ministry started with a problem. Everyone, which is really good news for those of us with problems. You are a candidate for a miracle. No problems, no miracles. Maybe you ought to come up afterwards and Dr. Aiken and I will lay our hands on you and pray that God will give you some problems. Because if you have some problems, you are a candidate to experience the miraculous power of God. In a storm, Jesus will always do one of two things. He'll show off his power by delivering you from the storm or he'll show off his power by his ability to keep you in the storm. Sometimes he will look at the storm and he'll say, peace, be still. Other times he'll look at you and say, peace, be still. The peace that passes all understanding is not always, it is not even usually his calming of the storm. The peace that passes all understanding is his sustaining presence in the storm. So when you go through a storm, wake him up through prayer, rouse him through bold, desperate prayer, but be prepared for either answer. Again, discouragement in our lives, the storms of fear in our hearts, they come from either A, forgetting the power of Jesus over the storm, or B, doubting his commitment to us in the storm which leads me to the last and most important insight into this story very quickly because it shows us why we never have to doubt his commitment to us or to the mission that he sent us on. This story gets told in such a way that it's supposed to remind us of another prophet who had an incident with the sea and that prophet was named Jonah. But Jonah and Je- both Jonah and Jesus were prophets heading toward the Gentiles. The Sea of Galilee, I reminded you, was the body of water that separated the Jewish territory from Gentile territory. When Jesus crossed it, he was heading to the Gentiles, just like Jonah had been. Both Jesus and Jonah slept through the storm. Both were woken up by scared sailors who asked, don't you care? When Mark says the wind ceased and there was a great calm, that is the exact same phrase we see in Jonah when Jonah was thrown into the sea. And then here's where it gets really interesting. Jonah calmed the storm by plunging himself into it. Jesus calmed the storm by speaking to it. And that's because this was not the place for Jesus to plunge himself into the sea. You see, the sea throughout the Bible represents God's wrath. In the book of Revelation, when all the evil empires arise, they come out of the sea. In the new heaven, Revelation says he's going to put away the sea. That doesn't mean there's no beaches in heaven. It just means there's no more wrath in heaven. At the cross, Jesus is going to plunge himself into the sea of God's wrath, where he's going to be swallowed up by death for three days, and like Jonah, was swallowed up with a fish. The wrath of God is terrible, like a raging sea, greater than we could ever comprehend. It would have destroyed us forever. 
And he faced the terror and silenced it with overcoming love. And see, so now we can be sure of his commitment to us and his commitment to the mission. You see, if he cared about us then, if he didn't forsake us then when the waves of God's wrath overtook him, surely he will not forget about us now and he will continue to watch over every detail of our lives and will finish through us the work to which he has called us. So be encouraged. He has united himself to you and your boat. He will not let you sink because he won't let himself sink. 2 Timothy 2.13, even if we denied him, he wouldn't deny us because he will always be faithful to himself. The Lord is building this city. He is watching over his house. Indeed, he who watches over you, Israel, he will neither slumber nor sleep. In fact, if you recall, when Jesus went to the cross, the real sea of God's wrath, it was we who were sleeping on him. Peter, James, and John representing us slept while Jesus stayed awake to face the wrath of God while we slept. He has always been, always is, and always will be wide awake to our storms and our suffering, always in perfect control. Here's the question. Who really got woken up in this story? Not Jesus. He knew what was going to happen from the very beginning. The disciples got woken up to his power and love. And that's why that storm is in your life. It's there to wake you up to his power. You struggle with sin to wake you up to his power to deliver you. You struggle with provision. You struggle with things so that you can learn to be weak in yourself and strong in him. Maybe that's why that storm is in your life. And maybe what he's doing is saying, I need you to see with fear who I am so that you'll quit fearing yourself and start fearing me. Quit fearing others and start fearing me. Quit fearing the opposition and start to fear me because those who fear him need near fear nothing else. Why don't you bow your heads with me and let me pray. Let me just ask you to consider, maybe this is going on. See, tearing down every false sense of calm, every false sense of support so that you can find your peace in him and not your circumstances. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that are preparing to represent you. I pray that they would be able to testify to a Jesus that they have experienced personally, whose strength they felt in their struggle with sin, whose strength they felt in their marriages, whose strength they've felt when he provided and empowered. I pray especially for our brothers and sisters that are headed over now to East Asia. I pray that you would strengthen them, you would embolden them, empower them, God, with a large sense of who you are, the greatest gift that you could ever give us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.com. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.